The best policy is informed policy. Today's guests are dedicated to providing that data to the state's decision makers and help separate fact from fiction in the policy debates driving laws in New Hampshire. I'm Matt Murray, Executive Editor of Business NH Magazine. And I'm Nathan Carroll, Chief Growth Officer of Granite Media Group and founder of Cardinal Consulting. And welcome to BizCast NH. Matt, so this is kind of cool. Um, I'm excited for our guest today, and I know you've got or, or you've had, uh, you know, certainly um, a relationship or a connections to uh, the New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute, of which uh, our guests are uh, employed by. And um, curious about that connection and, and why uh, you thought, well, let's have these guys on today. What's uh, what's behind all that? So, yeah, uh, they have been a great partner of Business New Hampshire magazine. Uh, So our regular readers will know that every month we have uh, think pieces in from different um, organizations that help to inform policy in New Hampshire. Uh, So it's uh, our think tank column. And so we have three contributing organizations uh, that bring different voices and perspectives onto policy uh, to our readers each month. And so uh, we work with the BIA, the Business and Industry Association, and uh, Citizens Count, and then the New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute. And so they do terrific work in um, mining data, taking a close look at uh, the policy issues that are affecting New Hampshire and that the legislature is looking at, and um, coming at it uh, from a nonpartisan viewpoint to provide information about what are the facts be- that drive these policy uh, decisions. And so they really provide this valuable tool to, I mean, let's face it, we have a huge legislature. They're volunteer. They have, because we have such a big legislature, it means that they have a flood of bills coming at them. And so in addition to living their lives and representing um, the, the, their constituents, they're having to deal with a myriad of, uh, of really hard issues that are facing the state. And, um, it, you know, you can't be an expert at all of them. And so they need this, this kind of um, information that can be at their fingertips that can help them in deciding what is best for the state and their constituents. And so uh, I know for our business readers, again, who are very busy running their companies but need to know what's going on policy-wise in the state, you know, they provide a really great window into these um, big issues for them. Cool. I'm excited. (laughs) I am too. Um, And we should note too that um, we are having this discussion a week before the governor announces the state budget. So keep that in mind as we are grilling them later on uh, (laughs) what the legislative session, there we go, um, will be, you know, what we can expect. Um, They are going to be giving their expert insight, but it is right before the budget's announced. Yeah, all relative in that in that case. So uh, awesome. And you know what? Um, let's just dive right in. So our guests this week are from the New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute. We're joined by Gene Martin, the organization's new executive director, and Phil Sletton, research director for NHFPI. Prior to NHFPI, Gene served in a dual role as the associate director of development and director of government relations at Plymouth State University. He previously held various roles in the New Hampshire State Senate. Gene 
Dean is a PhD student in leadership and policy at the University of New Hampshire, where he received his Master's of Public Administration from the Carsey School for Public Policy. Phil Sletton has been at NHFPI as research director for over six years. He conducts research and analysis on the state budget, state revenues and expenditures, the economy, and the economic security of Granite Staters with a focus on those with low and moderate incomes. He's also a graduate of Leadership New Hampshire, class of 2018, and was recognized as one of New Hampshire's union leaders, 40 under 40 in 2021, and, was named the 2020 Young Professional of the Year by the Greater Concord Chamber of Commerce. He lives in an old farmhouse on Dirt Road in rural Henniker. Phil and Jean, it is so great to have you. Um, we've got so much to talk about, um, but uh, maybe you could start us off by uh, giving us a little bit of the nuts and bolts of, uh, of NHFPI. And uh, so what it is and really that role that it plays here in New Hampshire. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us. And it's excited to talk about this work. And so the Institute is a nonpartisan, nonprofit, independent research organization based in Concord. We examine the state budget and state revenue policy, the state economy, health and education policy, and the economic security of Granite Staters with a particular focus on low and moderate income folks. And so I think the important thing to remember, and as we talked about the very large legislature, it's important to note that we run a very lean state government. So a lot of the services mm. that we provide would be in a larger state, something that a state agency would provide and, and do. So I think about friends who that I know who work in other states and who work at agencies that provide this kind of analytical capacity for the legislatures. Remember, senators have an office in the state house. They have a part-time staff person, but a state representative doesn't. So a lot of our audience are the policymakers themselves in providing detailed information uh, for them. And we've been around since 2009, and that's really our, our main focus to help policymakers, journalists, and community leaders at large understand the issues that are happening and the interconnectedness that a state budget, which seems abstract, but connects to us in every single way you can think of. And Fantastic. One yeah. of the things we always like to explore, so before we get into you know, policy and, 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 and the legislature is how our guests get to the paths, the career paths they're on. And so how do you become <laughs> policy <laughs> data people? You know, what led you to becoming to, to, to the Fiscal Policy Institute? Um, and at what point did you go, this, this is what I'm doing? Sure. So I'll start. Um, and this is Phil, by the way. So between our two voices, um, uh, when I was, so I was uh, probably about 12 when I first became interested in public policy because I learned about uh, climate change. And I thought this is a problem that, you know, has to be solved collectively, right? This is not one we can solve through individual action. Uh, I uh, went to college, uh, studied a fair bit of economics, studied a lot of public policy. It's part of part of my degree from college uh, and from graduate school. I went to graduate school for public policy um, and became very interested in economics over that time. There was a lot happening in the economy at that time. And I... I went to graduate school with some of the people who I'm very proud to call them colleagues, honored to call them colleagues, really, because there's 
probably some of the smartest people I will ever meet. Uh, and they, um, I saw them working in this field of public policy. About a third of them went into, you know, nonprofits and somewhere out in the country. About a third went to the federal government and about a third went to the state government. And I was going to graduate school in Wisconsin. And I saw that this third of my colleagues were going into state government and bringing their policy analysis expertise and uh, and the sort of analytical chops that they had every year, about a third of them going into the Wisconsin state government. And I said, wow, that's a lot of analytical capacity then that the state of Wisconsin has. I'm from New Hampshire. I was born in Concord and I grew up in New Hampshire and I wanted to then I saw that and I said, I want to do that, but for my home state, right? I want to go back to New Hampshire and provide this, to the extent that I can with my training, provide this analytical capacity, this um, uh, the policy, the information that policymakers need to make good policy decisions. Um, so I came back and worked for the Office of Legislative Budget Assistant, um, and I was doing uh, was doing very interesting work there. It was audit work at the state level. And, uh, and an opportunity came up at the New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute. And I said, that's, that's a work that I would really be interested in doing, this uh, analytical work for the public benefit, um, making lots of graphs, you know, helping explain things to people um, uh, that are complex policy topics and, you know, and the economics that affect people's daily lives, right? People who are uh, oftentimes not as a big a part of the public policy discussion, but are, you know, granite staters who are working to make sure that they can put food on the table, they can pay their heating bills, they can make sure their kids are, um, are getting a good education. All of that is in the realm of public policy and uh, is often, especially at the state level, underanalyzed. So I wanted to come back and do that in New Hampshire and, um, and be part of the pipeline of people who were going into, in and around state government in New Hampshire and helping everyone understand these policy issues. Right on. So why, um, why the Wisconsin to study? <laughs> uh, sure. So I went to college in Iowa and then graduate school in Wisconsin. Um, so New Hampshire did not have progression, right? Yes, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> so New Hampshire did not have the Carsey School of Public Policy at the time. Uh, that oh, that the entity didn't exist. There was the Carsey Institute. There was the University of New Hampshire Master of Public Administration program, all producing really smart graduates. Uh, but I didn't want to do public administration work. I really wanted to do public policy work, and that's that sounds like a maybe a distinction without a difference, but there is a difference between those two degrees. Mm -hmm. And um, and I intentionally went to the Midwest so that I could experience a different part of the country. Uh, and, uh, and I have family from the upper Midwest, so I was attracted to going to school out there to begin with. Uh, and, uh, and after spending six years there, I wanted to come home and bring the skills that I had learned and paid for uh, back to New Hampshire to work in my home state. There it is. There it is. So, Gene, you um, joined NHFPI just in December of 22. Is that right? That's correct. And so um, we, we talked a little bit in your bio about what you were up to prior, but um, just kind of tell us about, uh, yeah, who, who you are, where you came from, and then I guess in that case, how you ended up where you are now. Absolutely. And so I think about hearing Phil's story, it's similar to mine. Um, you know, I lived in a homeless shelter when I was a little kid for a few years with my oh, wow. mom. And so I think about public policy. I, you know, I 
was interested. Phil talked about being at 12. I remember driving to Manchester Memorial High School early in the morning, grabbing my Dunkin' Donuts iced coffee, no matter how cold it is. You always have iced coffee because we're from New Hampshire. <laughs> and have my muffin and sort of get there early and read the newspapers, right? The, probably the only kid in the cafeteria doing that at 16 because I was interested about my own experience, how public policy had an impact. And I wanted to be an attorney and I interned in the state Senate because I thought, oh, that makes a lot of sense. You do that. And I realized as the public policy conversations were happening, there were very few people who had a similar experience. And we talk about low and moderate income folks. That was my um, you know, life. So I came to there, worked in the state Senate, loved it, and then had an opportunity to go work for my alma mater, Plymouth State, which um, love and passionate about and it was great to work in education policy for a little bit, but I'd always been a supporter and watched the fiscal policy and students. So when the opportunity came, when they searched for the next exec director, you know, I, I thought it was a perfect opportunity to come and be able to work on the issues that I care about and try to make a difference. I have two daughters, and so I see the interconnectedness here. And so it's really important um, and just really happy to be here doing the work in, I th- think I just hit my two-month uh, anniversary. So it's been a great two months. Excellent. And it made brings, it that long, so there you go. <laughs> <laughs> and it brings up an interesting point. I think a lot of people start checking out when it comes to public policy issues. That's wonky. It's, you know, not directly in my life. But as you pointed out, public policy is very personal. It has um, very personal implications for people. Can you talk about why people should care about what's going on with the budget and the legislation and, and the type of laws that are being passed? And how informed are we or are we not about that? You know, I think, you know, when I chat with my friends that I went to middle school with who don't know every United States senator by looking at them and knowing their name the way some folks know, you know, sort of uh, football players, things like that. We talk about issues and we talk about child care. We talk about housing, right? Those are public policy challenges, education. Like, where do I send my kid to have the best school that they can? And so I think, to your point, people disconnect public policy in the state capital with things that we're feeling in everyday life. And folks should care about it. You know, the state budget is the most important policy document that we, we as in the state of New Hampshire, the legislature's enact, the governor signs it, is the most important policy document that happens in two years. And what priorities happen? And so if you're concerned about child care, if you're concerned about housing or education or the high cost of um public higher education, or if you're a business and you're concerned about workforce issues, the state budget and through public policy can be a way to provide solutions. And so people should care about it. And I think not enough folks do, but some of the work that we're trying to do at the Institute is, yes, still have that wonky work for people who care deeply about 30 pages of you know Medicaid expansion implications on the state, but still break it down for what are the 10 facts you should know about the state budget. So we try to balance those uh, pieces. But regular folks talk about challenges when they're out with friends. And I think it's important for people to pay attention to the legislature, knowing that everyone has a real impact to make a difference in our citizen legislature. And I don't think enough people know that. And so even though we are talking a week before the budget's going to be released, and so we can't talk about specifics of it, There are obviously a lot of issues that have come up in recent sessions, um, and there have been indications given by various legislators as to what, you know, is important to them in the upcoming um, session. So 
maybe we can couch it this way. What are some of the um, big issues that we're expecting in one way or another that this budget's going to be addressing and that l- the legislature is going to be dealing with? Um, and in talking about that, how should our listeners then be viewing the budget when it is out, when it comes to these? Yeah, so, and I'll say briefly about the process. Uh, the governor's budget picks uh, kicks off the sort of public phase of the process in that the governor submits his budget proposal in mid-February, February 14th is when it's scheduled for this year. And uh, then the legislature has to come up with a proposal, right, go through the House and the Senate uh, for the state budget by the end of June, because at the end of June, the current state budget expires and the next state budget uh, begins. So there has to be some sort of spending authority in place then. Uh, In terms of the issues, the the big topics that would be tackled uh, or that could be tackled in the state budget, um, on the health and social services side, that's about uh, 44% of the current state budget is health and social services expenditures in those ca- in that category. Um, another quarter of it is education funding. And a lot of that flows from the state budget to local governments, to school districts, to, to fund student education. So when people are thinking about the state budget, it's important to remember how much of the state budget, two thirds of the state budget is health, social services, and education. What are some of the implications of that in this particular cycle? When we're thinking about health and social services, obviously we have a pandemic that is hopefully winding down. But one of the things that's associated with that is we have a lot of federal spending that has come into the state over the last two and a half years, uh, almost three years at this point, um, that is uh, that has had a really tremendous impact on both our economy and the services provided in the state uh, and services provided by state and local governments. They're federally funded, but they're provided by state and local governments. That spending is not going to be repeated or hopefully not going to, hopefully we are in a situation where that's going to be repeated, but it means that those services then have to be calibrated. Those services have, some people are going to lose those services. Some people are going to be, for example, over the course of the next year or so, disenrolled from Medicaid. What does that, because of the temporary pandemic-related provisions that have kept people enrolled on Medicaid, those folks are going to be disenrolled. What does that mean for other services that they may need or for their actual eligibility for Medicaid um, that they haven't had to show in the same in the same manner as they did previously? So there may be uh, social service needs that are a little bit difficult to predict. There may also be an economic downturn, right? If we have a shallow recession or if we don't have a recession or if we have a deeper recession in the next two years, what does that mean for the services that the state budget can fund? What does that mean for revenue? What does that mean for um, how money can be raised in the state to support these services? And there may be additional service needs going into the next uh, two years, the next budget biennium as a result. So those are some of the big issues that are maybe more immediate and more uh, unique to this particular state budget, but there are ongoing ones, such as education funding, um, such as housing, such as supporting the workforce, right? Ensuring that there are places for people to move here and live and contribute to New Hampshire's economy. Um, And what does it mean for economic opportunity for folks who 
aren't uh, aren't always provided the economic opportunities that um, that by existing structures that may make them better able to engage with the workforce. That could be something like education for in a long in a long view could be higher education in terms of folks getting a degree and being able to do something else um, in the workforce, having the credentials to do so. Could be childcare. Right, or care for older adults, people who might otherwise be more engaged in the workforce and can't because there aren't the uh, policy supports or the, uh, uh, the service infrastructure available for them that is either accessible or affordable for caring for maybe their kids or maybe their parents who are getting older, for example. So much. <laughs> um, Phil, a quick question for you and maybe to help our, our um, listeners to sort of further understand um, how the work is, is happening here. Your, your kind of uh, your, your primary uh, role is, is research. Um, so how are you conducting research and, say, analyzing a state budget? I, you know, what does that look and feel like almost for you? Yeah, so analyzing a state budget uh, is oftentimes diving as deeply into it as you can and trying to make the information more accessible for more people. Mm-hmm. And nice. uh, and that can be uh, that can you know manifest itself in the form of a of a graph showing so showing here's what funding for transportation has been over time, for example. Um, sometimes you're diving deep into budget lines and saying, here's a you know here's how a childcare funding line has been shifted. What does that mean or what might that mean in terms of implications for overall funding or for how funding is targeted for child care services and child care scholarships, for example? Um, there's, uh, there's a lot of putting the budget in context and also looking in detail at what is in each particular budget proposal at a level of detail that you know, frankly, uh, doesn't always, you know, it, a lot of people who want to get into that level of detail don't have the time or the capacity or resources to be able mm-hmm. to, because mm-hmm. we can and do dedicate that time to it. We highlight, uh, we highlight issues in the budget, we highlight uh, trends that the budget is reflecting, or that the budget is spurring, that, uh, that we hope contribute to the public policy conversation. You know, let's, pick up on one of the threads that you had, which was Medicaid expansion. Um, you know, the legislature is going to consider whether it's going to reauthorize or if we're going to be ratcheting that back. Uh, the Business and Industry Association is calling on the legislature to reauthorize the expansion because of the workforce issues we face. And that's one of the ways that we keep a healthy workforce. But can you talk about the work that you've done at the New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute on that particular subject? What are some maybe of the common assumptions people have about Medicaid and Medicaid expansion, and what are the facts behind that? Sure. So uh, one uh, fun fact, both about the state budget and about Medicaid expansion, Medicaid expansion actually isn't in the state budget. Uh, So the state budget is not all state expenditures. Uh, The legislature can separately authorize expenditures. So even though this year we are looking at Medicaid expansion and the state budget at the same time, Uh, They are actually two separate pieces of legislation, or at least have been historically. The legislature may decide to combine them, um, but they have been historically different pieces. Uh, Medicaid expansion is up for consideration again this year because in uh, 2018, it was reauthorized for a five-year period. And that was a state policy decision. We're going to reauthorize this for a five-year period. Um, Medicaid expansion is a portion of a larger program, the larger Medicaid program, And uh, the larger Medicaid program primarily serves children 
and uh, adults with either a disability or, uh, in some cases, for example, an acquired brain disorder or um, a developmental disability that uh, that need long-term ongoing services. So these may be folks who are receiving care in their home or at a nursing facility, right? A lot of that is Medicaid-funded. If someone is income and asset eligible, and in many cases there's both an income test, uh, meaning that individuals have to have low incomes, uh, and uh, in some cases, there's also an asset test that how many how many assets do you have on hand? Even if your income is low that year, how much do you own in terms of uh, in terms of property, in terms of what you have in your bank account, et cetera? So Medicaid serves uh, prior to the pandemic, Medicaid in total served about 178,000 people uh, in New Hampshire, and that includes Medicaid expansion. Uh, And that's a pretty significant portion of the population of a state that's now close to 1.4 million people. Uh, the, uh, the The key things to know about Medicaid expansion is that while Medicaid is quite targeted and oftentimes people have to meet several different thresholds to be enrolled in Medicaid. Um, For example, if you're an adult, you have a a child that you're taking care of. It could be your own, for example, um, and you have to have very low incomes. Um, Medicaid expansion basically has two criteria, uh, which are your age, you have to be 19 to 64 years old, and your income under 138% of the federal poverty guidelines. And that means that it is very responsive to, for example, when someone loses a job or when there's a recession. And uh, and it is authorized separately from the rest of the Medicaid program, at least in New Hampshire. So the enrollment in that, uh, in Medicaid expansion, is one that uh, both supports the economy because it brings in a lot of federal dollars. 90% of it is paid for by the federal government. Um, and that goes to support the healthcare sector in New Hampshire, which is a big employer and um, uh, is helpful for individuals because these are individuals who likely would not otherwise be able to afford health coverage on the individual marketplace. And one of the topics that you've covered in your columns in Business New Hampshire Magazine is around um, those safety net services and their economic impact. Can you talk about, because obviously those, whenever budget time rolls around, are always a prime topic um, as to whether they should be expanded, whether they should be cut back, what is the impact they actually do, are people too reliant on them? There's so much political discourse around it. So can you talk about what are some of the facts that you bring forward about those impacts? Sure. So uh, the um, one of the things that we see in economic modeling is that uh, economic modeling done by, for example, by Moody's Analytics on the private sector side, by the Congressional Budget Office uh, down in D.C., we see that the uh, the mod- economic modeling shows that when you are trying to stimulate the economy, one of the most effective ways to do that is to provide resources to people who don't otherwise have it, right? Resources to people with low incomes, uh, resources to people who've lost their jobs, who are unemployed, because those are resources that then get directly into the economy and in many cases directly into the local economy. People are receiving food assistance and they go spend it at their local grocery store, right? So uh, when you look at that economic modeling, you can see that um, in, at least in, the, uh, for, in a short term, uh, over the course of a year, if, if the federal government puts an additional dollar into food assistance, that results in, you know, depending on which uh, particular time period you're looking at, 
a dollar and fifty generated in economic activity, right? So there's a sort of a fifty percent boost to your economy, and there's some evidence to suggest that there is um, additional uh, value in rural areas, which of course a lot of New Hampshire is rural. So that's an example for food assistance. If we're talking about food assistance, housing assistance, uh, uh, you know, so rental assistance in many cases, for example, um, we see that those economic supports are then either keeping people fed, keeping people in their home, keeping people um, to be able to be engaged in the workforce or engaged in the economy if they've lost their job, for example, during a recession. And that provides a substantial amount of economic stimulus, much more so in some cases than you know, tax rate reductions. Uh, we see that tax rate reductions, at least uh, based on the economic modeling available from the Congressional Budget Office and from uh, Moody's Analytics, does not provide the short-term economic stimulative effect uh, that we see in, from the, some of those public assistance programs that are targeted at people with low incomes. Because if you were to, for example, reduce a tax rate and those resources then flowed to an individual or a business entity that has a higher income or already has assets, that may not change their expenditure behavior in a way that is economically stimulative to the same degree that, for example, food assistance does. The, econo- the, the money just doesn't get into the economy, particularly the local economy, as quickly. That's what the economic modeling generally shows when we look at the, at the swath of data that are available. And Gene, one of the first things that you did after um, taking the reins was um, introduce a new publication that the Institute's put out. Can you talk about what it is and why you produced it? Absolutely. And so this is a project that's called New Hampshire Policy Points, and it was something that the Institute had been working on for a few years. And so I got to send it to print two weeks in the new role, but excited to put this out every two years before the legislative session. And essentially what it is, is it's, uh, I'm holding it in my hand and our listeners can't see it, but it's a really nice green uh, color. Uh, but it's a guide to the key issues facing Granite Staters. And so it really goes through and it's a quick, what I would call a data snapshot that shows, you know, what is New Hampshire in the sense of our population, our demographics talks about sort of key areas in the state, talks about quick facts about the economy and housing, health, education, transportation, broadband, internet. You know, just thinking about what are the challenges and that as business owners, you know, think about this and not having enough workforce. All of these things are connected in the state budget and through public policy. And so our hope was to just provide quick facts in a 60 page uh, little booklet that has um, nice charts to be able to really show folks what is happening in state government and on these sort of quick snapshots of of policies. And I don't think, for example, I think, you know, maybe some of your listeners know, but one thing I always think it's fascinating to folks is that of the New Hampshire employment by industry, almost 68,000 jobs are in the manufacturing sector. And I think when people think that they're kind of taken aback, it's like, oh, really in New Hampshire, 1.4 million people, but that's a significant number when you think about it. And I think your average person probably would be surprised that there's that many jobs uh, in that sector in the state. And so um, how can our listeners get their hands on that? Yes. And so we have, if you go to nhfpi.org slash policy points, there's an online resource there. And then there's also the physical copy of the book, uh, which we'll send to you. It's $20, $20, uh, but there's a free accessible online copy to make sure that everyone can, you know, uh, 
be accessible. You have to type in your email, and then it sort of uh, downloads it for you. But it's something that we're very excited to produce. We send it to every legislator, and it's been getting around. And so, um, again, our hope is that it provides information to folks. Again, that's our really our mission is to provide the information for policymakers um, and community leaders and business owners so they can um, talk about the issues that matter the most to them. We don't lobby, we don't advocate. Our job is just to really provide the information and have folks um, do with what they wish. Right, right. And you, um, so that is every two years you said that publication or? That is the goal that every two years, oh, it's, okay. it's a lot, of, it's the first time it's the inaugural publication. And so mm-hmm, the hope mm-hmm. is that every two years, and again, you know, there's some danger, I guess is the word I would, you know, to put out a book, obviously the data is um, as of October 22, but I think it's important for people to be able to see it. And, you know, again, you can, there's nothing wrong with the PDF, but I think it's a little bit easier for you to just sort of flip through. And, you know, one of the facts I love to tell people, if you flip the transportation, you talk about planes and trains, and Phil's heard me say this a thousand times, but I just love the fact that it tells you that New Hampshire has 133 registered airports. And it's just, again, sort of a federally designated sort of space, but so people have the helipads in their backyards, things like that. But again, just an interesting fact that you might never know unless you pick up uh, policy points. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. And and what I'm really appreciative of and, and sort of fascinated by is is the way in which you, you know, the work you're doing, you're really, you know, pulling out the, this important data, these these points that people, if they don't have all, a lot of time that they should at least know or understand, you're boiling things down. Um, and so in addition to, to this publication that'll be every two years, are there ways in which our listeners can connect with you? Or do you have a, you know, a newsletter, whether monthly or weekly or other ways that they can connect and, you know, even be more involved in policy uh, and, and understand it more than they may now, for example. 100%. And so we have a monthly newsletter that comes out. So folks can go to our website, nhfpi.org, and they can sign up to get that uh, newsletter. We'll sort of, we push publications to send out. And you can also follow us on all the social media channels. And um, sure. we share awesome. a lot of what we're reading, uh, not necessarily just what we're pushing out, but sort of, sort of what are the things that we're looking at to help inform our own opinion. But there's lots of information out there. And if folks want to dive deep, there's, uh, I think, a very accessible website that they can find out, you know, for our key policy issues, they can do a deep dive on a number of issues. And Thank you. New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute is also a nonprofit, so they can also, if they want to support your work, donate through your website, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, we would appreciate that. You know, we really, uh, we don't get any government funding. We really are... uh, a small nonprofit that really, uh, thanks to great foundations and individuals and businesses, that's sort of how we uh, fund the staff and be able to produce the nonpartisan research that we we do. And so we thank you folks who want to go and donate. We appreciate that. Absolutely. Get there, folks. So um, I wish we had a whole other hour. Maybe we'll, uh, not maybe, yes, we'll have you guys back, uh, you know, maybe even after the budget and we have, uh, you know, is out and, and there's more to talk about. But um, this is just very, it's all fascinating. We, we thank you for your work. Um, like I said, I wish there were hours more to talk. Uh, Gene Martin and Phil Sletton are with the New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute. It has been the tip of the iceberg, but a joy. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the stories and information you heard on today's podcast, find more by subscribing to Business NH Magazine or visiting businessnhmagazine.com. I'm Matt Mowry. 
and I'm Nathan Carroll. BizCast NH is a production of